You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm Chad Dundas, alongside Ben Folks. We're both senior writers in MMA for The Athletic, and we meet here every single week to chop up all the prominent, newsworthy, and hilarious happenings in the world of mixed martial arts. Ben, the people who are used to live-streaming this podcast and seeing our beautiful faces on the YouTube videos maybe going to be a little bit disappointed this week. Well, hopefully it'll just be for this show. We're still figuring it out. YouTube, you know, they did away with the Google Hangouts live streaming function that we love so much. A lot of people seem to love it. Yeah, it was very easy to use. So, of course, it made sense to just completely ditch it, I guess. But uh, we we think we have a plan that might work. We have Well, we have a couple different plans. One of them eventually is going to work. But uh, I think that we should be back up and running on the live streaming by Wednesday, which is good since we're scheduled to do a live chat. I don't know how else we'd do it. So, yeah. I think I think we'll be okay. It seems to be a primary function of the internet that motherfuckers can't just leave well enough alone. Nope. Just can't just can't let shit be existing and working. Like this whole uh Twitter redesign that they did? I don't care for it. I don't care for it either. You know what the worst part about it is? What? The GIF integration into tweets when you're on desktop. Like when you're on your actual laptop, they went in and made the GIF selection process entirely more cumbersome than it either needed to be or it used to be. Would you say you find the new gift selection process onerous? Onerous is a great word for it. You got to click like two, three different things that you didn't have to click before. You know, people say like the pioneers had it hard or like people like during the bubonic plague. If they only knew how onerous the gift selection process would get. Downright onerous is what it is. It's just, I mean, dysentery, I'm sure, really sucks out there in like a covered wagon. But the gift selection process is onerous. It's like two more things you got to click. Just doing that tiny little motion with your finger. It's onerous as hell, man. Onerous AF. A lot of you out there might know this already, but I got a new book coming out in January. My second novel, a thriller mystery called The Blaze, hits shelves January 21st, 2020. But that doesn't mean you should wait. For the new year to go get it. No way. Here's the thing, guys. As a young, well, let's be honest, not that young. No. Middle-aged. Not not even young-ish. As a middle-aged up-and-coming writer, pre-orders are very important to whether my publishing company is going to let me go on and continue to write books. And you know that I want to continue to write books. Long story short, I need your support. Go out there today and pre-order the hardcover version of The Blaze at Amazon.com or Barnes & Noble or IndieBound or wherever fine books are sold, it'll help me out. And if it shows up at your house in January, it'll be like you got yourself a present because you probably forgot all about buying it in the first place. I love when that happens. Then we'll both be happy. Yeah. You know what? Better yet, get drunk, then pre-order Chad's Boom. Novel. Perfect. Perfect. Get drunk. I don't know. Order, order five copies. <laughs> yeah. Just start, you know, be like, oh man, I haven't thought about this ex-girlfriend in a long time. I bet she'd enjoy a copy of The Blaze, though. Yeah, I still got her address saved in my shipping selections here on Amazon.com. Yeah, nothing weird about that. It's my dad's birthday. He's old and weird. Don't know what he'd like. Oh, I bet he'd like The Blaze. He would like The Blaze. 
Absolutely. Old and weird is probably your target demographic here. Remember, guys, a great way to look fresh and toss a little money in the CME coffers is to pick up a Cowboy Astronaut Cigarettes or Dundasso Cigarettes t-shirt. Those are always available all the time whenever you want them over at CottonBureau.com. Just go over to CottonBureau.com today and pick up some CME merchandise. We got music again this week from longtime listener and friend of the show, Raz Jarborg. If you like what you hear from him on this episode, you can check out more over at SoundCloud.com. Slash S T H L M RAS Stockholm RAS. Ch- Chad, you see what I'm showing you there? What is that? That's what a picture of our guy, Abby Subhan, who oh, is yeah. the video editor over at MMA Junkie. That's him in front of the Leaning Tower of Pisa. You see what he's got on his, his torso there? He's rocking one of the red Cowboy Astronaut Cigarettes t-shirts. Cowboy Astronaut Cigarettes t-shirts making it all the way over there to the Leaning Tower of damn Pisa, man. That's, that's on his Instagram. Yep. That's on the IG, the Grams. Looking fly. That looks like a uh, an advertisement that it, we paid it, to have done. It looks pretty goddamn professional. That's a social media influencer right there. Yep. Yeah. Looking good. Three rounds, as usual, this week in the Co-Main Event Podcast. In round number one, Colby Covington absolutely will not rest until you roll your eyes and mute the television whenever he's on it. Is that a good gimmick for the presumptive number one contender at welterweight? And in round number two... Let me get this straight. After fighting out her UFC contract, beating Felicia Spencer, and building up a bunch of goodwill with fans who didn't like the way UFC brass had treated her, Chris Cyborg's team released a doctored video of her backstage encounter with Dana White designed to make it look like White said something he didn't actually say? Well, that's just super. It's just fucking great. (laughs) And around number three, UFC Uruguay. More like hashtag UFC Uruguay, am I right? But I'm. That was my plan. I was going to be the guy who pronounces it Uruguay. Well, you can do that. The, the real rest way. Of the show. So, like the same way, like when you want to be an asshole and let people know you're an asshole, you pronounce it Guatemala. Yeah. Hashtag yeah. Uruguay. Uruguay. Am I right? I feel like I'm nailing it. All that plus, are you fucking kidding me? And just saying stuff. But first, like we always do about this time. Let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. First piece of listener mail comes to us this week from Chet Ripley. Okay. Might want to Google that one. Yeah. Sounds like an Archie character. He's uh, uh, going to rumble with Jughead today after school. Chet Ripley. You know, honestly, though, Jughead probably has it coming. Chet Ripley writes, Jim fucking Miller. I don't think he will be a UFC Hall of Famer, but if somebody wants to start a Hall of Awesome, you got to vote him in on the first ballot, right? You know who Chet Ripley is? Who's Chet Ripley? He's the character played by John Candy in the 1988 film The Great Outdoors. Okay, Chet Ripley. There mm-hmm. we go. Yeah. Interesting reference here in the uh, often interesting references made during the Co-Main Event Podcast listener mail section. It's a journey. It's always a journey. I appreciate that about it. Then yeah. Jim Miller goes out there, chokes out Clay Guida, unconscious in 58 seconds in the co-main event of UFC on ESPN5 over the weekend at the Prudential Center in Newark, New Jersey. So a, a home state win for the man, Jim Miller, who, uh, you know, he struggled with Lyme disease here recently. And he says that he's got it under control now. He's 35 years old, but he feels like things are better for him than they've been in a while. He's won three of his last four. Uh, he says he's going to keep after it for a while. And then when he walks away, it'll be he'll be walking away for good. Now, I think when everybody talked about Jim Miller versus Clay Guida, Ben, what we had in mind was like a 15-minute just slobber knocker, crackerjack all over the cage, yeah. a couple of little scrappers. 
throwing down for 15 minutes. But I'm going to come out and say 58-second technical submission by Jim Miller. I was not disappointed. No. No, it was a lot of fun to watch. And they, as you like to say, packed a whole lot of living into that time. They sure did. Jim Miller got staggered there, then came back, fired, hit, hurt Clay Guida. And then you don't often see people get put to sleep with the arm in guillotine. It's a tough guillotine, I think, for people to finish because it instead of the usual guillotine where you're just pulling up basically with your forearms across the guy's trachea, that one you kind of have to use your legs and your body together to like pull him in and kind of like like you're putting a kink in a hose. Like that's how that choke works. It works differently than the regular guillotine and it's tougher for people to finish. And to be able to put a guy to sleep that quickly with it, that's a guy who you can tell by the way he jumped into it. Pretty damn confident in his guillotining abilities. Yeah, that's a uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt who's been around the block a few times. Yeah. And, you know, good win for Jim Miller. This was one of, like, two fights on the main card that seemed like people actually cared about it before it happened. And so then to go out there, get a quick first-round finish in front of the home crowd made me think about Jim Miller's earlier comment that he might tell us and might not when uh, retirement comes for him, but it wasn't going to be Saturday. You see him go out and do stuff like that, and you're like, yeah, man, Jim Miller, if he wants to, he can keep going for a little while. The exchange where Clay Guida hit Jim Miller and seemed to uh, to stumble him a little bit, and then Miller came back and hit Clay Guida and seemed to stumble him for a second, despite the fact that the end came shortly thereafter, that was the moment where sitting at home, again, all by myself, watching this on television, I was like, fuck yeah, we yeah. are getting exactly what we paid for. Uh... The question, though, about the the Hall of Fame and the Hall of Awesome. This, Jim Miller, I think, is a great example of exactly what we have talked about with the Hall of Fame, why it would be helpful to have different wings in an MMA Hall of Fame. Because do you count him as an elite fighter, you know, best of the best up there with all these champions and, you know, like it's going to be George St. Pierre, Anderson Silva, and Jim Miller? No. He never really got there. But... If you do have a wing of just awesome dudes and dudettes who we remember fondly and we enjoyed having around, Jim Miller is a first ballot guy for that. Yeah. yeah. I think the, 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 like one of the introductory questions I feel like you need to answer about any manner of Hall of Fame would be, you know, like what kind of achievements do you want to honor? Do you want it to be merely for the cream of the crop, the greatest of all time? Let's say like the 10 or 20 uh, to this date greatest MMA fighters in the world. Like that's, that's something like, I think everybody could support that. And that would definitely make all of the people who were selected hall of fame worthy. But I think that there's additional questions that can be asked. And I think one of them certainly is like, do you want there to be other qualifications or do you want to celebrate other stuff in any kind of, uh, you know, hypothetical mixed martial arts hall of fame, whether it be the actual currently existing UFC Hall of Fame or something else that we make up in our own minds. And like for all of its criticism, for all the criticisms that get lobbed at the UFC Hall of Fame, they have made the decision that they do want to honor like different kinds of achievements. They have, you know, one quote unquote wing that's just for awesome fights. They have one for people that fought during the pioneer era. They fought, they, they have one for people who are more modern contributors. And then they have like an entire section for people who, who like never fought, but gave the sport in other ways, like Art Davey, uh, Joe Silva, Charles Mask, Mask Lewis yeah. is in there. Uh, and so like if you're talking about even a totally made up MMA Hall of Fame, I think one of the, uh, uh, legitimate avenues for discussion would be like, what kind of achievements do you want to honor in the Hall of Fame? Because I think you can make the case, like, even though Jim Miller is not an elite guy, and if you were going to, well, 
in the landscape of mixed martial arts, he's an elite fighter. But like, if you're talking about greatest of all time in the sport, uh, you know, he's probably not on that list. You could probably get 50, a hundred guys deep before you start talking about Jim Miller, just in terms of like championships, won and achievements in the octagon and stuff like that. But he's got more fights than anybody else. He's been around for a long time. Like, I think that there is a, a case that could be made that there could be a Hall of Fame, some kind of Hall of Fame uh, uh, honor for people just who experience that kind of longevity. Yes. Because, like, how long is the average UFC career? Like, three fights yeah. before you get banished back to the independent circuit and you languish there until you decide to just go be a mechanic or whatever? No, especially in this sport and at this level, longevity should count for something and for a, a big something because it's not just that – You've managed to stay good enough to not get cut. You've managed to stay good enough and like healthy enough to keep getting in there and doing this in a sport that is basically designed to break down the human body. So, yeah, I think that that should definitely be a qualification. And you have that awesome dude wing, I'm telling you, and there could be a sports bar in there and we're, we're selling awesome dude hot wings in the awesome dude wing of the hall of fame a lot of branding opportunities jim miller's on the wall in that place jim miller made his ufc debut october 18th 2008 against david Barron at ufc 89 he is still there and has never been cut by the organization like he's never fought anywhere else since having that fight how many people do you think if the ufc has 500 fighters under contract at any one given time how many people have come and gone since yeah. Jim Miller arrived. Yeah. A lot. A whole lot. So, like, even if Jim Miller isn't the greatest, uh, you know, lightweight of all time, I think that you could certainly recognize the guy for just that longevity, man. I think that's perfectly valid. Yeah. In any case, the next question this week comes to us from Norrin Rad. Okay. Uh, I believe that is the, the Silver Surfer. Norrin Rad is the Silver Surfer? Yep. Yep. Let's talk about Mini Kelvin, a.k.a. Nasrat Harapast. Oh, come on. How do you say this guy's name? I just Hakparast? Hakparast? Is that what it is? Now I know. Nasrat Hakparast. Mini Kelvin works just as well because he does, does look Dude ex- does exactly look like Kelvin like. Gaslam. In fact, the video online of them both looking at each other in the mirror, have you seen that? No. Where like they're both standing in front of a mirror and they're talking about their haircuts. Uh, and then like you get to see both of them. Like they could be brothers in a movie. They could cast these two guys as as brothers in like a sitcom. Okay. Hashtag would watch. Three straight wins in the UFC and he's just 23 years old with that thick frame. T-H-I-C-C. Yeah. We can guess how thick is spelled. The ability to control where the fight takes place and some mean punching power. The sky's the limit with this kid. The fact that he is already fighting in a high-ish profile fight in the U.S. of A. I think also says that the UFC sees something in, in, in him as well. Is it too soon for a top 15 opponent? I think not, says Norrin Rad, the Silver Surfer. Yeah, I mean, he's got a few uh, fights already <sighs> against people who are known guys. You know, he fought uh, Mark Diacasey and uh, Tibalt Guti. Now uh, Joaquin Silva goes out there and starches him. I, I mean, it does seem like we have a lot of people in a lot of divisions right now where we're having this kind of similar conversation because, you know, you're a middle card guy in a UFC fight night type event. You're fighting another middle card guy and you're you're putting those dudes away. You're looking good against those kind of dudes. And then it's a question of, okay, you can only do that for so long and then it's going to get serious. And can you still stick around and be relevant when it does get serious? Because, uh, you know, you get into... 
the top 10 of the division here, and it can get scary. Yeah. Those dudes are some serious business guys. I mean, this is probably the most competitive division in all of MMA. Yeah, in the entire sport, not just the UFC. You know, I like guys that have awesome uh, Wikipedia photos. Have I you seen that. what Nasrat Hakparast has going I on? I have, yeah. It looks like... It looks like he's in a Roy Jones Jr. music video. Yes, like y'all must have forgot. He's clearly like on a boat. Yeah, he's wearing a Hawaiian. Is that a rose print Hawaiian shirt? Is that looks like it's got roses print all all over it? And he's kind of adjusting his sunglasses as if to say, "I'm on a boat." He may or may not be wearing red swim trunks that really bring out the the rose design. Really makes that pop. Yeah, and he's looking at you like, "Where are you?" Because I'm on a fucking boat. That's right. Another fun fact. Uh, Hawk Pross was a mechanical engineering student at Hamburg University of Applied Sciences. Okay. So that's not your your average launching pad for the career of a future UFC fighter. He is one of these guys, and we've said this a bunch on the show, who is part of this like embarrassment of riches that the UFC has in all divisions, but most specifically at like lightweight and welterweight, where there's just a glut of people, many of whom are like young, up-and-coming guys who talent-wise seem to be among this new generation that is going to turn out to be, you know, above and beyond anything that we've seen come before in mixed martial arts. At this point, it's just a matter of like distinguishing themselves one from the other, both in terms of, of creating a profile in the UFC where people know who you are and also beating higher level competition. So like, yeah, man, uh, he looks exactly like Kelvin Gastelum, which is a kind of an awesome thing to have going for him. And he defeats, uh, now see, here's this thing with, with, Joachim Silva. It looks like his name should be Joachim. Yeah, that's what I said. But people on the broadcast were saying Joachim. Okay. They probably asked him. They probably asked him. So he's out here just trying to trip us up is what's happening. Like, it's not hard enough. Like, there aren't enough difficult names in this sport. Now we got to take a name where we look at it on paper and we think we know what's up. And then you throw us a curveball. I mean, it's great. A great win for Nasrat Hakparast. It's a second round KO, 36 seconds into the second round. Seems to be starting to distinguish himself as perhaps a capital G guy in the 155-pound division. Somebody that we should know. But it's so hard to do it now. It's so hard to uh, become like a known commodity in the UFC that we're just going to have to wait and see how the, the how his career continues to play out and whether or not... He continues to get uh, uh, high-profile opportunities, and when it makes him count, we remember who he is. Right. Well, see, and that's the thing, because if you show up on a fight card three months from now, and people are going, Nazarat Hakparast, and then it's like, oh, yeah, a guy who looks like Kelvin Gastelum. That's it. Now I remember. That's like, you better hope Kelvin Gastelum continues to be a thing, too. Yes. By all means. Or, you know when Kelvin Gastelum will know his career's in trouble is when people start referring to him as the guy who looks like Nazarat Hakparast. That's right. Big Nasrat, they'll call him. <laughs> Next question this week comes to us from Isaac Spooner, who writes, Gerald Mearshart has been one of my guys since his UFC debut and gave me another reason to like the dude on Saturday. Who elevates their opponent's feet after choking them completely unconscious? A goddamn gentleman, that's who. Uh, this was impressive from Gerald uh, Mearshart defeating uh, Trevin Giles via guillotine choke in the third round here, also on the main card. This was a middleweight fight at UFC on ESPN5. Like, Gerald Mearshart insisted on having this fight contested where he was the most comfortable. That was one of the things that I thought was most impressive about it, is that you get this sort of like wily uh, veteran, a guy who's in his 30s now and has been around for, for a while. He's out there against the this like athletic 26-year-old prospect in Trevin Giles, and Mearshart is just like, I'm going to trick you into having my fight. 
And then he did, pretty much, and eventually ended up choking him unconscious. Uh, so it was sort of like a, a – it was the kind of performance that, that a guy like me can get behind. A 40-year-old man sitting at his house being like, yeah, let's show these young whippersnappers we still got it. Isn't it always interesting how much it freaks the referee and the cage side officials out if you try to do anything? Yes. Like if you – trying to elevate his legs, like you just accidentally choke somebody out in a jujitsu, you know, just a Saturday morning roll – down to the gym, an open mat, and somebody didn't tap, and then you're like, okay, well, let's quickly get him revived. Or if you try to go over there and like pray over your downed opponent, or, or you know, they are always like, hey, just get back, man. Right? Yeah. Well, because they don't know what you're up to. Yeah, they like, don't. They don't know like, if you're trying to be nice, like Gerald Mearshart is here, or if you're doing a uh, Jorge Masvidal, right. where you're going to get down and explain in painstaking detail to this man why he deserved what just happened. Yeah, weren't trying to do like a stone cold in his face, like, yeah. where you're just yelling at him after he's out. Yeah, they don't know what you're doing. And so their response is whenever they see the opponent hanging around in the downed fighter zone, they're just like, whoa, whoa, whoa back up, man. Back up. You've done enough. Yeah, like uh, in competition when there are officials around, I, I feel like you should just step away. Let the officials handle their business. You don't and we're, yet, this, we're, this, we're not having this fight in my basement. We don't need Gerald Mearshart to like to elevate a guy's legs for us. And yet when you're trying to get noticed in the busy UFC landscape, a gentlemanly move like that might be just enough. It did make uh, Mearshart seem like a good dude. Yeah. So, so there's that. Even if it did freak out the referee. Next question this week from Alex Pacey, who writes, I guess Herb Dean will be shelving plans for the release of his, quote, how to spot a successful choke VHS. I mean, this was kind of a weird event in that three different people lost by technical submission. Yeah. Meaning that they got choked completely unconscious. You had uh, Lucy Pudilova against Antonina Shevchenko. You had uh, Trevin Giles against Gerald Mearshart, like we talked about. And then you had uh, Clay Guida against Jim Miller in the co-main event. And they all kind of happened in different ways. Yes. Like, so, uh, Giles tried to tap, yeah. right? But, like, the ref was on the other side of his body and couldn't really see it. Yeah, and he was moving just as the tap was happening. So, and he, you know, he's probably trying to wait until he absolutely knows that he's not going to escape from this before he taps. Right. And so if the, if the referee doesn't see it right, we, I mean, we've seen plenty of instances where somebody goes to tap and either they just begin the tap or they don't quite make it and they're, they're unconscious because they're already walking that fine line since there's, you know, we're doing this for money. So you really want to win. I don't blame, uh, Herb Dean at all for the one with, uh, Jim Miller and Clay Guida though, because that's, if the fighter's not going to tap, then I don't know what you want the ref to do. People were complaining like, oh, wait, hey, why did it take him so long? He's reaching in there, grabbing his arm, trying to see if he's still out. And it's like, that guy caught a lot of shit for thinking Robbie Lawler was yeah, out. That's the thing. Against I think. Ben Askren. And then, so when he finds himself in another situation like that, he's going to make sure the guy's out. And with the blood choke kind of stuff, it's not like it's a super high risk if he stays in there one or two seconds longer. Yeah, I it's think not be like, okay. it's not as though there were any situations on this card that seemed like they were dangerous. Uh, and like you said, there's been a couple of high-profile instances recently where fights got stopped and it turned out that the person who was being choked was not necessarily in any kind of trouble, was not about to tap. Robbie Lawler, obviously, against Ben Askren is a great example. And then uh, who else just recently got screwed? Jason High? Yeah, it was, it was her, uh Yeah, it might have been. No, Jason. it wasn't Jason High. It was uh, Will Brooks. Will Brooks. There you go. Uh, over there. I think that's in PFL. Is that where he was? Somewhere. He was in a choke and uh, ref called it off, but he wasn't. He wasn't in any kind of trouble, at least by his own estimation. So it seems like referees are being a little bit more cautious right now, probably because of high-profile uh, snafus to make sure that they don't call off the fight too early. 
And again, it's just like one of these things that, again, we're just compounding how difficult these guys' job is. Like, you don't want them to call it off too early, and we're going to criticize them if they call it off too late. So they have to be there exactly on time, every time, or they risk the wrath of the social media world. But really, when you think about all the different ways a fight can be stopped, knockouts, uh, technical submissions, like being choked out or having your arm bent into a goddamn pretzel, we've seen fights get stopped that way even if somebody didn't tap – a blood choke is the one thing where if it does go on a little too long, it's the lowest risk yeah, yeah. of any of those. Next question this week from uh, presidential candidate Andrew Yang. It's good to hear from him. Yeah, he's uh, see, making time to email the podcast. That, but see, this is the rare one where I, even though I know this is probably not Andrew Yang, he's a big MMA fan. So yeah. it could be Andrew he Yang. Could, yeah, he could be actually listening to the podcast. He could have us on his earbuds while he's getting fired up for the debates. Yeah. Walking around backstage, man, like, you fucking kidding me? You fucking kidding me? <laughs> see, that's exactly what I would recommend for a presidential candidate. Listen to our podcast. Yeah. Andrew Yang writes, under the tutelage of Cody Rhodes, Cain Velasquez had his pro wrestling debut this weekend at Mexico, Mexico's equivalent of WrestleMania. By all accounts, it was successful. With speculation, he may go to AAA or AEW, uh, which starts its television show in October. What are the chances MMA has truly la- seen the last of C-Level Kane? Ben, did you see this? Some highlights yeah. from Kane Velasquez's wrestling match over there at Triple Mania? He was pretty good. He was good. And not just like... In the serviceable, I'm not really a wrestler, but I'm going to come out here and do this. Like, he's doing high-flying shit out yeah, there. Yes, yeah. My I, Hurricane Rana from Cain Velasquez in this match. I, I tweeted about it, how I was just mainly surprised and impressed that he was that good at it. But also, you know, coming from this world and knowing the struggles Cain Velasquez has had, I'm watching him do some of this stuff. And I'm like, Cain, you're going to hurt yourself, man. Take yeah. it easy. Yeah. But really, if he can be this good at this... I don't know if I would even mess around with MMA anymore if I'm Cain Velasquez. That's what I was going to say. Like, does he, well, I guess it may in large part depend on the paychecks, but like, does Cain Velasquez really have any any reason to come back for mixed martial arts aside from the fact that he may just like have that con- competitive spirit in him that he wants to press on and keep going? Because, you know, it's not as though the guy really has anything left to prove to right. us. Like, uh, he was a UFC heavyweight champion and a damn good one. He was. It was. He was regarded as perhaps the future of the division and never didn't necessarily have the longevity or the physical health to live up to that. Those expectations. But at the same time, like, what is that really? Like, we thought he was going to do more than he did. I don't know. He did okay. He was the champion. Yeah, did he pretty had well. Fought on on the first show on Fox. Had a series of fights against Junior Dos Santos. It was uh, a really really good heavyweight champion. And like, if his body will hold up to it. And if he can get paid some money and he's good at professional wrestling, like not that it means anything, but he has my blessing to go off and do that and hopefully be happy and and, uh, and live the rest of his life in peace and harmony. Doing crazy high-flying maneuvers. I like that Cain Velasquez wore the mask, even though we all knew who, who that was. We see the tattoo, man. We know who you are. Yeah, like a mask with bullhorns on it. There seemed to be a lot of mask stuff going on at this. I mean, I'm not well, that... that's yeah, part of Lucha Libre, yeah. part of the Mexican tradition. Uh, the one guy, though, like, he's basically... Like, it's not just a mask. He's wearing, like, an entire, like, bull head. Yeah, there's... Uh, it's getting pretty... Uh, there's a lot of costume-oriented stuff these days. Yeah. With, with uh, not just wearing a mask, kind of taking it to the next level. You got guys out here pretending to be actual physical dragons and whatnot. In Actual the, uh, physical dragons. Yeah, in the uh, the Lucha Libre world. See, this this is the uh, name of my Imagine Dragons Imagine Dragons uh, tribute band. Actual physical dragons. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, it hasn't gone over very well. You don't even have to imagine. You know, we got sued. Uh, 
know, haven't, even, haven't even played a show. You know who would like that is my four-year-old. Yeah. He fucking loves Imagine Dragons. Or the two songs that he has ever heard by them on the radio. I don't care for them. I'm going to be honest. They're not my favorite. But I do listen to them a lot these days. Uh, let's see here. Ah, we got time for one more. Let's do Ross from Ohio. So War Machine got married. Or is getting married. That's neat. What are your thoughts? I think he did get married. Isn't there a picture? Like a jailhouse wedding picture that came out? This... I can't say I can't say that I'm surprised though, right? Like War Machine spending a good portion of the rest of his life behind bars, owing I mean, to hopefully all of it, owing to uh, violent physical attack on uh, then girlfriend Christy Mack. Uh, but you see that that one of these like jailhouse hangers on falls in love, quote unquote, with uh, War Machine, and and they they got married. This is a, this is a thing that happens, I guess. Why is why though? It's, is well, it's, just, some, it's some kind of condition, right? I think there's an actual like psychological term for it for uh, people that like become attracted to and think they have fallen in love with someone who is like a notorious criminal and behind bars, and eventually they get married. Do you think if you are the person behind bars in this situation and you realize, okay, I got one of these, I got a pen pal here who is, who has this mental condition, whatever it is, where they seem to think this is a good idea. But hey, I guess I can't afford to be too picky. I guess, you know, even if I think that maybe there might be something wrong with a person who would even be interested in me in my current situation, even if normally they might not be my top choice, maybe I need to look around, see the situation and go like, all right, sure, screw it, let's get married. Why not? And what am I worried about? Yeah, if you're War Machine, you're probably just taking any kind of, like, human contact that you can get, right, at this point? I just, if you if you have a friend and they're like, you know what, I've been talking to this guy in prison via letters, and I think we're going to get married. There's where, you know, my friends can make a lot of terrible life choices, and I'll be like, hey, well, hey. I'll be supportive. If that's what Good. makes you happy. Yeah, but this is one where I'd be like, okay, I'm going to... It's going to be a no from me. <laughs> I'm well, going to have to step in here and veto your life choice. There's also the question of like, how deep do you want to get? And if you are the kind of person who's out here falling in love with uh, people, with Charles Manson types, let's say, uh, do you have a lot of people in your life who otherwise are going to want to get deep enough with you into you, in, slog deep enough into the bog of your consciousness to be like, hey, Maria, maybe that's not the best idea. Maybe you don't want to get married to Charles Manson. Or do you think you're just kind of, you're out here on your own just winging it? Maybe you guys could just seriously date. You just be friends. Keep, keep it casual keep with your War options Machine. open, you know? Maybe, maybe a nice guy who is not incarcerated for the foreseeable future comes into your life. Who knows? In any case, that is going to do it for Listener Mail this week. If you have a question, comment, concern that you would like to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says, Email the Podcast. That will get you in touch with us. While you're there, go ahead and sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter that uh, comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss on all the days that we're not recording the podcast. Stuff always happens. News always breaks. The newsletter itself is short. It's informative. We would love to tell you it's funny. And the good news is, if you don't like it, it's really easy to unsubscribe. As for right now, though, we are going to go ahead and get started with round number one.
that there's a lot that needs to be said about Colby Covington. And some of that stuff may not be exactly what the listening audience of the Co-Main Event Podcast tuned in to hear this week, but nonetheless has been made a topic by Colby Covington and continues to be the defining characteristic of Colby Covington's rise through the welterweight division, and therefore we need to spend a little bit of time talking about it. However, it's my Stephen A. Smith transition here. Okay. However, let's talk first about what he did to Robbie Lawler in the main event of UFC on ESPN5. He beat Robbie Lawler from pillar to post in this fight. There was never really a time when it seemed like Robbie Lawler was about to jump up on the table and win this thing. This was basically the Colby Covenant show for 25 minutes. A hellacious pace, both on the feet and with his takedowns and his control, and really seemed to befuddle and stall any kind of the ferocious offense that we are used to seeing from Robbie Lawler to the point where a lot of times in this fight, it was like Robbie Lawler uh, was stuck slipping punches and forgetting or not being able to throw any punches in return. It was like there was a glitch in the program, like you're mashing buttons on the on the controller at home, but the guy on the screen just isn't doing what you want him to do. He's just only slipping punches. He was just buried by the volume of, that Colby Covington was throwing out there. There's just so like, nothing he did was really super overwhelming, but he just never stopped doing stuff. Whether he was taking you down, even when he's looking for chokes, and it doesn't even look like he's thinking he's going to try to finish these chokes, but he's just always doing something yeah. to you. And Robbie Lawler had to spend so much mental and physical energy on defense that he never got any momentum going on his own. And it, it was incredible to be able to do that for five rounds. But it just tells you something about Colby Covington's gas tank that he can just, he's so confident, like, I don't have to pace myself at all. I will just go all out from the very beginning for five goddamn rounds. Yeah. And you will just be so overwhelmed by it that even though you don't feel at any point like super devastated or super uh, hurt, you still just won't get a chance to do anything. Yeah, and uh, it's super impressive. The stuff that Colby Covington does is is a really impressive technical mixed martial arts performance. And in some ways, I don't know if it's unique, but I feel like it's very distinctive what he does. He has his own style that he is using to uh, really, really positive outcomes for himself. Obviously, uh, he was an All-American wrestler, two-time Pac-10 uh, champion at Oregon State, and a lot of that comes into play. But I feel like the way that he uses his grappling is really interesting because it's like he almost doesn't care if he can control you on the ground. He almost doesn't care if he can hit you on the ground. He almost doesn't care if he can find a submission, but he just, like, he's using his grappling to control the space and to wear you out. Like, he's taking Robbie Lawler down and leaning on him and hitting him if he gets the chance, but really what he's doing is, like, forcing Robbie Lawler to work. And, yeah. like, that's the end of the of the wrestling. Like that's the, the, the desired outcome of Colby Covington's wrestling. So it's a little bit different than what we've seen before. And yet very, very effective from Covington and, and like kind of froze Robbie Lawler to the point where like, if you had told me before this fight, Colby Covington is going to outstrike Robbie Lawler in historic proportions. I would have said that doesn't sound right to me. 
But that's what happened here. I think he broke a record for most total strikes or something like most that. Most total strikes attempted. The numbers on this one are... That's right, but he doesn't like when he's hitting you. It's the same thing. Like, he doesn't even really care if he hits you. Yeah. He just wants to make you move. He threw 541 total strikes, landed 201 of them. So, as far as just, you know, accuracy percentage, not that great. But still, the end result is you spend the entire fight dealing with strikes and 200 of them hit you. So, yeah. that's pretty significant. And you saw Robbie Lawler's face by the end of that. And yeah, you, could, you, you could hear it when he talked, like just the swelling that's going on in there. You can't see Robbie Lawler at the post-fight press conference and accuse Colby Covington of not doing anything. Right. Plus... 10 of 18 takedowns. Yeah. To even attempt 18 takedowns in a five-round fight is kind of insane. It, it is just numerically kind of mind-boggling what he did. Now, the interesting thing for me is that you come out of this fight where everybody is going, all right, Colby Covington, god damn it, we still have to deal with this guy. We're We're sick of his gimmick. We're sick of everything he does. And yet... You can't really get around the idea that he is the number one contender. And you look at this style that he put to work against Robbie Lawler, and then you think about how it worked against Kamaru Usman, and those are very different situations. Yeah. You're not just going to be able to go out there and do that exact same thing to Kamaru Usman quite as easily. Right, yeah. Seven wins in a row now for Colby Covington. Back-to-back wins over Damian Maia, Rafael Dos Anjos, and Robbie Lawler. So, like, a pretty good run of victories here to... You know, not only make him the interim welterweight champion, which he was later stripped of, obviously, but like to make him the consensus number one contender and the guy who really ought to fight Kamaru Usman next for this 170 pound title. But you're right. Obviously, Usman uh, is a different kind of fighter than Robbie Lawler. And uh, his uh, as a matchup of styles with Colby Covenant is very different. And I'm, I couldn't sit here right now today and tell you who, who's going to win that fight. But I can tell you that Kamaru Usman has been pretty damn impressive in everything that he has done, especially recently in the UFC. That said, nobody is sitting here Monday afternoon talking about the number of strikes that Colby Covington threw, except us. Nobody is sitting here talking really about the physical performance that Colby Covington put in about against Robbie Lawler. We're all talking about the other stuff, the the these essential things that make Colby Covington Colby Covington in this MMA landscape. For instance, a Matt Hughes train joke in the immediate aftermath of beating Robbie Lawler. Yeah, and look, no one is also making an argument that Matt Hughes seems like a cool dude, but he almost died when he got hit by a train. Yeah. and yeah. so that makes and he's like Robbie weird, Lawler's longtime friend. Yeah, weird, nonsensical, out of place diss on Matt Hughes for getting hit by a train that Colby Covington did live on national television. Just another flag, a red flag up in the air that says Colby Covington is doing this shit on purpose. Yes. Like he is not, maybe this is an extension of Colby Covington's natural personality, but this is an act. You could tell that from the Matt Hughes joke, and you can tell it from the fact that Colby Covington employed Kurt Angle's WWE theme song for his walkout against Robbie Lawler and basically invited all of the fans in the arena to chant, you suck, along with the with the music. Colby Covington knows exactly what he's doing with all this stuff, and he's doing it on purpose. And in fact, especially as it pertains to the Matt Hughes joke and the telling, literally telling the sweat hogs in the arena at Newark to shut up while he was talking, he won't allow you to like him. No. 
He is no. doing a straight, gorgeous George professional wrestling gimmick where, like, even if you want to high-five him, he's pulling his hand back and saying too slow. Which I will say again, makes me wonder if anybody has explained to Donald Trump that how... You know, Donald Trump tweeted in support of Colby Covington that his sons are sitting there doing their goofy-ass, like, thumbs-up, uh, proving again that they don't know how to smile right as they're standing there in the front row at this fight. And his the Make America Great hat is part of his uniform, basically. And I would just love to hear, be a fly on the wall when somebody explains to Donald Trump, like, oh, you have a big supporter in this fighter who is uh, rising up the ranks in the UFC. Oh, yeah, what's his deal? Well, he's intentionally an asshole. He is, you know, a dick on purpose and makes everybody hate him. And uh, being a supporter of yours is a big part of how he accomplishes that. Yeah. And look, like I believe that Colby Covington is probably a Trump supporter in real life. I don't think that that part of his act is a lie. But at the same time, like you said, he is using it for effect. It's a tool that he uses uh, to build his public persona, for better or for worse. And yet, like, there is something that's different about this than what Chael Sonnen did in the past and what Conor McGregor has done and continues to do. And part of it is that Colby Covington, as a means of self-promotion is like linking himself to current events and ideology that are causing people to die. Like Donald Trump tweeted his support for Colby Covington 14 minutes after he tweeted about the mass shooting in El Paso, Texas over the weekend. So like you can argue that Colby Covington is doing more than just trash talk here that he is like, he's crossed a bridge into uh, the ether of current events in a way that it is that is more distasteful than even Conor McGregor, like uh, making fun of Habib Nurmagomedov's religion or something. And now here we are poised to send Colby Covington into a title fight against African immigrant Kamara Usman. It's almost too perfect, like the, the cultural forces lining up here. Yeah, but here's the thing, like here's the question that I have about Colby Covington's shtick at this point. And I would... Uh, uh, I would admit that up to this point, all of Colby Covington's heel stuff has made him more of a topic of conversation than he would have been otherwise. And therefore, perhaps, even though he is terrible at it, his his acting job here has accomplished its goal. But as I start to think about this fight with Kamaru Usman and really even listening to Colby Covington on the mic over the weekend after beating Robbie Lawler... I have to admit, like, I don't really want to watch it. Like, if the point is to sell yourself and to uh, market this fight, like, I'm going to watch the fight because I'm a mixed martial arts fan, and this seems like a uh, an interesting mixed martial arts stylistic matchup, and frankly, I get paid to cover the sport, so I'm going to probably watch them all regardless. But, like, if I didn't have a dog in this fight, I probably wouldn't pay any attention to the lead-up to this fight. In fact... Just as Colby Covington won't rest until we dislike him, I would probably make a point to miss it. And that makes me wonder, like, is he really, like, is the thing that he's doing positively working in his favor at this point? Or would he have been better off to just win seven fights in a row? No. No. I mean, I understand the point that you're making, but I also think, look around. Look at somebody like Leon Edwards. Do you think you think winning a bunch of fights in a row is all it takes? Because he's won a bunch of fights in a row. 
What's his winning streak at right now? It's got to be like seven or eight or something like that, it's right? It's comparable. Yeah. He's also not necessarily getting the opportunities, the right. high-profile opportunities. But then there might be a reason for that, too. We just talked about Leon Edwards the other day. It's like, how weird is it that he is obviously such a really good fighter, and yet he's mostly known as the guy on the business end of the three-piece in a soda? Yeah. And it's like either you create something that you want people to know you for, or they know you for nothing, or they know you for some other little minor thing that just they latch on to. You can never guess what the MMA public is going to latch on to at times. And you see all these people who are doing really well, and yet nobody pays any attention to them. You know, you've got EZ Dos Santos. He's doing really well. No one cares in the, outside of like the few minutes that he's in the cage. He, as soon as he's gone from view, people forget about him. And Colby Covington... Definitely adopted this gimmick as a solution to that problem. Yeah. I mean, I believe, like you said, it's probably a magnification of his actual personality, but it definitely seemed like a calculated move to address that issue. Like, how do I get people to remember me and how do I get people to care? Yeah. Like, getting people to like you is tough. Like, that, that's, a, that's a harder alchemy to master, especially in this sport. Getting people to dislike you is easy. Yeah. At the same time, I'm, I'll just reiterate, I feel like something, like he's doing a different thing than what we've seen before. Well, and he's doing it badly, for one thing. I he's, think that's. Yeah, he's like not it. doing it believably, for starters, and yet that doesn't seem to matter one way or the other. But at the same time, like, this is different than, like, what Chael Sonnen did. This, and, like, this is even different than, like, uh, the Iron Sheik waving the Iranian flag in the uh, mid 80s to get fans to boo him. Like, if you were a person in this in this country who looked at Colby Covington and and were like, uh, I can't watch this guy because I don't want to give any money or credence or attention to this particular ideology, which seems to have dragged us to a very precarious crossroads in this nation right at this time. I would be like, yeah, man, I understand. Yeah, I totally understand. And maybe there will be more people who are going to tune in because they either want to support Colby Covington or they want to see Kamara Usman beat Colby Covington up. But at the same time, like, man, the, the, the championship fight between the African immigrant and the Trump supporter, both of whom are probably going to uh, act outlandish during the lead up to this fight. To me, there's just something even more untoward about it than 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 like the untoward stuff than we've that we've seen in the recent past. It does have the potential to get absolutely toxic. Remember what we talked about after the Khabib Nurmagomedov Conor McGregor fight and people were saying, "Okay, wait a minute. Maybe we let this stuff our love of trash talk take us into a dangerous area and where it, it didn't. It wasn't fun anymore. And you had athletic commission officials talking about how we need to find guys for trash talker or suspend them or pull back on it somehow. And then you head into one like this where you're like, it seems like it has the potential to be so much worse than that. Yeah. No, I agree. Let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we will move on to round number two. Ben, what is your Are You Fucking Kidding Me? Do you see that fight between my dude, ice hockey player extraordinaire, Scott Hot Sauce Holtzman, and Dong Hyun Ma? Yeah. This is a fight between two guys who did not give an F. That was a hell of a fight for as long as it lasted. Went two full rounds before it finally got stopped because Ma looked like he was birthing an alien out of his left eye. Are you fucking kidding me? You see that shit? And honestly, he didn't seem uh, nearly as bothered by it as basically everybody in the immediate vicinity <laughs> right. who had to look at it. 
Yeah. Are you fucking kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me? It was a hell of a fight, though. It was a hell of a fight. Did you see the fight immediate previous to that where Darko Stosic took on a guy that we've all decided we're just going to call Kennedy? <laughs> yes. Yes. What do you got on the last name here? Nezchuku? Zekuchu. Zekuchu. I don't know. Even on the broadcast, we were just going Kennedy. Straight across the board. Kennedy. Kennedy. Are you fucking kidding me? How is Darko Stosic going to look completely surprised and aggrieved when he loses the unanimous decision here in a fight where he lost two points, man? He had two points taken away from him for low blows, and yet he's going to make the Diaz face when he loses the decision. Like, he, his mind just got blown that he lost that decision. You fucking kidding me? Yeah, man. I mean, you, you got to know once you have lost the second point that you need to go out there and finish that fight. Even if you dominated all three rounds, the, even the judges by the second point deduction are looking at you going, man, fuck this guy. Lucky he didn't get disqualified. Although, the, uh, my favorite part about that, uh, Gary Copeland. I was just going to say, shout out to Gary Copeland, frankly, in this fight. Lil Brock. Lil Brock, yeah. Like they, and they had the uh, shotgun mic working on Gary Copeland you, during this thing. You could really hear him talking through his thoughts here yeah you know what i thought he did a good job like i thought in a weird ass fight where you're gonna take two points away for repeated low blows at least like he he maintained his uh operational control here's my favorite quote from him after he takes the second point away i believe uh talking to darko stosic stay away from it it's not a good zone for you brother Not a good zone for you. He's not wrong. No, he's not. No, he's not. Anyway, that's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two. something sadly ironic about the fact that one minute we saw Chris Cyborg demanding an apology from UFC President Dana White and then has to turn right around and issue an apology of her own to UFC President Dana White. She's on there on the gram, Chad, after that video circulates of her and Dana White backstage where she is imploring him to stop lying about her, and he appears to tell her, and a video is subtitled to suggest that he tells her that when he is saying negative things, he's not saying the truth. Now, then she gets on Instagram saying, Hey guys, I know that many people saw the video of my confrontation with Dana White after UFC 240 that was posted on my official YouTube channel, Twitter account, and Instagram account. I want to let everyone know that the video was edited by my production team. Side note. Cyborg has a production team? Do you think the, uh, what was it, years ago there was an intern or somebody from John Jones that tweeted some stuff out where later he was like, or it was like a, a PR person, a he social said? Social media companies, yeah. Do you think that person is on Chris Cyborg's production team? To make it appear as though Dana told me, and listen, whenever you hear me saying stuff, I'm not saying the truth. Dana did not say that to me, and the subtitles in the video were incorrect. As you can see from the unedited video, Dana actually said, and listen, whenever you hear me saying stuff, I'm not saying negative things about you. Uh, you, you try to imagine a way that Cyborg loses what goodwill that she has built up with fans 
this seems like maybe the perfect path to that outcome. Go ahead and, t- and doctor a video and then have to turn around and apologize for it. Now, everybody who was going, God damn it, we were on your side here. You, you felt, felt like you actually were a sympathetic character for the first time in a long time in your career. And then this, then the production team has to go and step in. The sheer stupidity here, like, honestly makes me mad. Like, I, this, this is the kind of stuff that I get maybe the most mad about. Like, we talked about this video on Friday during the Power Hour. Like, we got duped along with so many others. And so to find out later that the content had been doctored in a way that you made the video seem as though it was saying something that, like, Dana White didn't actually say, like, that's terrible. That's, I don't understand, aside from the fact that you got people who don't know any better on your production team, which seems, I can't even think, shudder, I shudder to think, like, who's doing this? But, like, to do this, to me, is unthinkable. And it just, it legitimately makes me really mad. Also, why did you need to do that? You didn't. That's the thing. This was It was just sheer stupidity. You didn't need to do this. Dana White had already legitimately said a bunch of bad shit about Cyborg. Like, we didn't need to do this. And when you did, you basically you threw a softball right down the middle of the plate to the UFC. Yeah. That's what you did. Well, and if you wanted to release the video of this backstage conversation with Dana White, and if he says... You know, hey, uh, when I'm saying negative things, I'm not I'm not saying negative things about you. You could just release that video, and that would be fine. Like, we would all see that conversation for what it is and be like, okay, Chris Cyborg is being the same person backstage, being like, hey, you've been lying about me. Please stop lying. And Dana White is, you know, kind of talking around the issue the way that he sometimes will, especially when he has to deal directly with the person that he has been talking about. That would have been fine. I don't know what the thinking was here behind you know the production team which i mean I, what do you think uh, the production team is up to right now hopefully they're updating their resumes yeah yeah you would think so right if the if in fact there is a say, production team that is responsible for this but it's just like well for one thing it threw the whole sudden change from Dana White into a sharper contrast didn't it where he was like okay we're releasing chris cyborg from her contract and now you're going okay maybe dana white did not appreciate you doctoring a video of him and maybe that is why they decided to go how quickly we went from we're gonna talk and try to get a deal done on a a new contract we want her around we don't want her to go anywhere to we're releasing her from her contract she can go anywhere now yeah yeah And I guess to just spin it forward a little bit here, like what happens now? Because she did put this apology out on the grams. He responded to it, if I'm not mistaken. I think he said like he appreciated the apology. He appreciated her like setting the record straight. Do we think that this makes any perspective deal between the UFC and Chris Cyborg more likely or less likely or just as unlikely as it seemed before? Well, it seems like this, the UFC and Chris Cyborg relationship is completely over with. So, I don't, I mean, if you're Scotty Cox, I guess here's where you, you take a few weeks, let everybody cool down, and then you start talking about a contract with Chris Cyborg. That's yeah, what I think happens. Yeah, well, and there's been some media reports out there saying that he's ready to offer her a deal whenever she is ready. Uh, but again, like, it's so stupid to put out this video, because whereas 
signing Chris Cyborg, if you were Bellator, seemed like an absolute slam dunk a few days ago. At this point, like you might need to let a little water flow under the bridge. Like it just like this just undermined so much of what she had going for herself leading up to this situation that, man, just makes me mad. You seem mad. It just really just... So you seem quietly furious. <clears throat> this is where I'm glad we actually don't have a live stream this week, because people would see me quaking with rage. Absolutely quaking. So you think she winds up in Bellator? You think we're going to get Julia Budd, Chris Cyborg? I think so. <clears throat> I think that if I had to, to place a bet on her, I'd say that that's where she goes. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> I don't know, though, man. The real question is then, if you're Amanda Nunes watching all this, you're going, all right, what... What now? Now, like, Cyborg's going to be gone. That rematch seemed like the biggest money fight that was possible for me. Now, shit. Can I fight somebody from the production team? <laughs> yeah, well, the UFC, like, if you're the UFC, do you even soldier on with this women's featherweight division? Because a lot of it, you know, seemed to be uh, uh, predicated around Chris Cyborg. Like, we can say everything we want to about like, all the stuff Dana White said and how they may or may not have treated her while she was under contract, but like they did promote her. Like that's, I think you got to give it up to them for like basically creating this women's 145 pound division and uh, like doing their best to like put a championship on Chris Cyborg, have her, have her have these fights now that she's gone. And Amanda Nunes, she's still the champ champ. She's got the bantamweight and the featherweight titles, but at the same time, who's even left up there. Yeah. But I think the re the whole reason you definitely don't want to get, just get rid of the division right now. If you're the UFC is because you want to keep getting all the mileage you can out of that champ champ thing. That's true. And it doesn't work as well. if the division doesn't exist. Yeah. If there's any instance where you, you have like a, uh, or you should have, uh, a, an interest in, in being, having a champ champ. That's probably it right there. Yes. Yeah. That's one thing Amanda Nunes has. that's easy for you to promote about her. Uh, at the same time, like if you're going to have the women's 145 pound division, let's get some athletes in there. Like, I don't know what you got to do to make it happen, but, uh, it would be nice to have like a workable top 10. It'd be nice to have some fights there. It would be nice. Wouldn't it? Instead of just, uh, kind of taking every opportunity as a one-off, but I guess. I guess that's where we are. You still you want Chris Cyborg in Bellator or the PFL? Like I still think the PFL would be awesome, but I understand that it seems like uh, Bellator is a little bit more of a realistic opportunity at this point. I, I wouldn't be mad at if she ended up in the PFL million dollar tournament for yeah. fighting Kayla Harrison. I get into more that. fights. It seems like for yeah, her. maybe. In any case, that's going to do it for round number two. We will be right back with round number three. And last weekend, the UFC was out there in Newark at the Prudential Center for UFC on ESPN5. On August 17th, they'll be in Anaheim for UFC 241, Cormier versus Miocic 2. So a little East Coast, West Coast travel for the UFC. This weekend, in the middle of all that, they will be down there in Montevideo, Uruguay. 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 
For, I'm getting it. I think I'm getting yeah, it. Yeah, you're, you're nailing it. For uh, UFC on ESPN Plus 14, your main event, Valentina Shevchenko versus Liz Carmouche. You got Mike Perry on this card. You got Volkan Uzdemir against the Bricklayer, Alir Vatifi. You've got a uh, four-fight prelim card after three bouts fell out of this thing uh, during the lead-up. I guess my opening question is, man, why Uruguay? Like, what are we doing going down to Uruguay in the middle of this run where you could make the case you already got enough stuff going on? Down there to the Antel Arena, granddaddy of them all. That's right. Uh, I mean, the UFC has been kind of passively interested in expanding its reach throughout South America, right? Yeah, and Valentina Shevchenko is a South American resident. She lives in Peru. I'm not sure if there's going to be much crossover there, but at the same time, I guess if you're looking around for someone to headline your South American venture, maybe she's going to do it. But still, man, like if you were going to ask me what countries are the UFC going to in 2019, again, I would have to get pretty deep in the list before I was like, oh, can't wait for that stop off in Uruguay. Uruguay. You're crazy about it. Maybe do that pronunciation practice after we're done with the show. I think it's going really well. Yeah. It also says something here, doesn't it? That, where we think we're at with Valentina Shevchenko and the women's flyweight title because, okay, you just had that crazy head kick stoppage. Everybody loved that. Next up, we're going to have you main event uh, ESPN Plus event for us, you know, in your in your home continent. So there's that. And we're just kind of going to pick a name out of a hat. Liz Carmouche. Sure. Yeah. There yeah. you go. And look, uh, Valentina Shevchenko fought Joanna Jacek in December. She came back, fought Jessica I in June. Now she's going to make a pretty quick turnaround to fight Liz Carmouche uh, basically in mid-August here. It seems like, she, at least in 2019, she's a little bit of a workhorse here for the UFC. Maybe where they're maybe they're looking around at the champions being like, okay, who's ready? Who can do this? And Valentina is saying that she's she's ready to carry the load. Put me in. I guess so. It, it does, though... If we were hoping to use some of these events uh, to help build up and sell the the big pay-per-view coming up here with uh, DC and, and Stipe Miocic again, you had the UFC on ESPN on a Saturday afternoon event with a main card that really had only like two fights that people knew about and were talking about beforehand. Then you turn around and you go for an ESPN Plus event down there in Uruguay. And it doesn't have a whole lot on there that's really going to get people to drop what they're doing. If these, if we were hoping to use these as the runway to get to UFC 241, I don't know how successful it is. Yeah, at least this one is on in uh, in normal hours, right? You got your main card kicking off here on ESPN Plus at 6 p.m. in the one true time zone, 8 p.m. Eastern time, and your prelim card at 3 p.m. in the one true time zone, 5 p.m. Eastern, so people will at least be able to find it. We got some emails to the podcast this week from people who were saying, man, I was just trying to figure out what time ES- UFC on ESPN 5 even started, so I checked out the UFC's website to see an update that Robbie Lawler had gotten his ass kicked by Colby Covington. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, at least this one will be on kind of in primetime hours where people are used to are used to seeing it, but it does feel in many ways, doesn't it, like uh, the point of some of these UFC on ESPN Plus events are to run ads for the next week's pay-per-view? Yeah, but I don't know. I don't know if it's really working that desired fun. I feel like if you were watching UFC Uruguay, you were already going to buy that pay-per-view. Yeah, that could be true. And most people, I think here is the part where I feel like the ESPN deal 
maybe uh, works in the favor of UFC fans. Because I'm going to take a wild guess that most of the people who are consume any part of UFC on ESPN plus 14 are not going to do so live and in total. I bet the lion's share of the people who are... Maybe I'm wrong. I guess I'm just guessing. I have nothing to base this on. Maybe, maybe everybody's going to watch it all the way through. I think what's going to happen is that the next day, a lot of people are going to circle back, watch the main event, which they break out usually yeah. to make it easy for people to do that. Probably click through the rest of it to make sure you see the bricklayer and Vulcan secret of the ooze, Vulcan ooze Demir. Been waiting for that one. Maybe you want to check out Mike Perry, uh, taking on Vincente Luque. Uh, but for the most part, and maybe anything crazy that happens, maybe if there's a crazy finish or submission, but I think this is one of those ones where you're going to kind of bounce in and bounce out. Have you looked up the odds for Shevchenko versus Carmouche? I have not. You know, Liz Carmouche is a person, uh, despite the fact that she fought just in February, she beat Lucy Pudilova. Uh, I kind of feel like she's been under the radar for a while. Like when you announce Valentina Shevchenko against Liz Carmouche, I was kind of like, oh yeah, Liz Carmouche, I wonder what she's been up to. So she's not necessarily a person that I feel like we've heard a lot from recently. The odds have right now Valentina Shevchenko at about a 12 to 1 favorite. Goodness. Yeah. And that's on the heels uh, of some fights where Valentina Shevchenko has been a a huge favorite. Liz Carmouche, if you had 20 bucks you never want to see again, you can get 8 to 1 underdog odds on her. Might as well, man. Because I know everyone's affluent. We all we all got this discretionary income we're trying to get rid of. We might as well gamble it on sports. Yeah, put it down on some kind of uh, fly-by-night betting site where you may or may not be able to take your money out afterwards. <laughs> this, is, this is why you're my fan, financial advisor right here. It's right. This is advice yeah. like this. No, it's lock-solid. It's lock-solid choices. Do you think that we're all just looking at this as like, okay, well, Valentina Shevchenko is going to go in there, roll over another challenger, and uh, then we'll get back to the business of trying to find somebody who can test her. Yes. No chance for Liz Carmouche here? Well, no, there's always a chance. It's mixed martial arts, man. I just told everybody to throw their money down on her. So, of course, there's a chance. We saw when she almost pulled off the win against Ronda Rousey way back in the day. She wins more than she loses. She's 4-1 uh, and one in her last five fights. Absolutely, there's a chance Liz Carmouche wins. I don't know that, that like that's what's written on the whiteboard in the UFC offices. I don't know that they're like, okay, after UFC on ESPN plus 14, what will we do with champion Liz Carmouche? How are we going to plot her rise to stardom? Yeah. I don't think that's what they're doing. I don't think so either. At the same time, you do make like a good point about Valentina Shevchenko, uh, who you know is 5-1 and one in her last six, and at this point has defeated uh, Joanna Yajajic, Jessica I. Uh, she had that gimme against Pris- Priscilla Cachuera, but she beat Holly Holm back in 2016. Like... She is, she's on her way to cleaning out this somewhat fledgling women's flyweight division, and it does raise an interesting point of like, man, what do you do with her yeah. moving forward? Although, maybe if you got a question about what you're also going to do with Amanda Nunez, maybe another champion versus champion fight. And you've already had that fight like twice. I'm, I mean, if you got a better option, lay it on the table. Uh Mixed tag team. Okay, yeah. See what Cain Velasquez is up to. Mm-hmm. See if you can teach her the Hurricane Rana. Maybe we get an array of masks to choose from, actual physical dragons, and we're in business. There you go. I'm into it. Let's do it. All right, Ben. Let's do uh, just saying stuff, and then we'll get out of here for this week. Ben, I, this week, I'm demanding an investigation. Oh, no. I'm just saying. 
I'm demanding an investigation into Lucy Pudilova and whether or not she has any bones in her damn arm. Okay. Because she got that thing absolutely wrenched by the lesser Shevchenko, Antonina Shevchenko, this past weekend on US on e- UFC on ESPN five. Didn't didn't appear that that did the trick. So Shevchenko had to retool, come back, and choke her out in the next round. I'm just saying, if you don't have any bones in your arm, that's a significant advantage, at least as it comes to submission defense. Yeah, I was going to say, it seems like it might present problems in other areas. No, I don't know. I, don't, I see no uh, disadvantages. Okay. Okay, you think maybe... Uh, for one thing, I would like us to move to a place where we, instead of accusing one another of secretly doping... We're accusing one another of secretly undergoing controversial surgeries. Yeah, had her bones removed from that one arm. Now when she throws it, it's just like a flabby... It's like hitting somebody with a pool noodle. It's like one of those uh, inflatable uh, guys outside the the car wash. Yes, exactly. That's what it is. Don't fight those guys. They will not succumb to your arm bar. Definitely don't try to arm bar them. Yeah, you got to choke them if you're going to do anything. I'm just saying. Uh, Chad, do you happen to have open the fight card for your Y? Uh, yeah. Close it right now. All right. Is it closed? Yes. I'm looking at Colby Covington, Robbie Lawler, Jim Miller, Nasrat. See, I forgot how to pronounce his name. I am going to read to you three matchups. Oh, God. Well, I was just looking at it a minute ago. From the prelims. Well, then this should be easy for you. I was not looking at the prelims. I'm going to read to you three matchups in the prelims, except one of them, I just made up the names. This old song and dance. Let's see if you can guess. I absolutely which can't guess. Which ones are real and which one isn't. Are you ready? I'm ready. Rogerio Bontarin versus Raulian Pava. Pavia. Fake. Sergey Lemkov versus Rafael da Silva. Real. That one's Geraldo real. de Freitas versus Chris Gutierrez. That's the One, two, or three. Number which, one is the fake one. Rogerio Bontorin versus Ra- Raulian Pavia. That one is 100% real. It's number three. Three was the fake one. Uh, Geraldo de Freitas versus Chris Gutierrez. That one's real too. Wait, number two was the one that was fake? Sergey Lemkov. Not a guy. Made that up. Rafael da Silva. Probably a guy, but not on this fight card. God damn it. That's the one I was really sure about. I'm just saying, I love this game. <laughs> he really sold it. Yeah. Man. Good acting ability yeah. over there. The poker face. In any case, nothing. that is going to do it for this week's Co-Main Event Podcast. Be sure to catch up with us next week. We'll be telling you about everything that happened at UFC Fight Night, Shevchenko versus Karmouche 2. We'll be looking ahead to UFC 241, where you got Daniel Cormier against Stipe Miocic. You got Nate Diaz versus Anthony Pettis. You got the getting off the bus championship on the line between Yoel Romero and Paulo Costa. A lot of good stuff going down at UFC 241. Probably going to be doing a fight party for that one over there at Ben Folks's house. Uh, until then, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. I really thought that I had that one. Yeah, you, you seemed confident. But you, you looked like you were reading them off the screen. I was reading them all off the screen. I know what I'm doing. You don't know what you're doing. Well, that's true. I have no idea.